Uh, welcome, and welcome to this podcast uh, entitled Nothing Works, a conversation around simplifying the management of people with complex pain in hospital, which has been put together by a team from the Faculty of Pain Medicine at the request of the Royal College of Anaesthetists uh, for a general anaesthetic audience. And my name is Dr Douglas Natouche. I'm a consultant in pain medicine and anaesthetics at Torbay and South Devon NHS Foundation Trust, and I'm joined by Dr Helen Makins, who's a consultant in pain medicine at Gloucester Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, and Helen is the national clinical lead for EPM UK, which is essential pain management, which will UK for the Faculty of Pain Medicine, which we will mention later. I'm also joined by Dr Zoe Malpus. And Zoe is a consultant clinical psychologist at Manchester University Hospitals Foundation Trust and Dr Karen Gilmore. And Karen is a consultant in pain medicine at Plymouth University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. So on to topic. I think there's a recognition that there's an increasing number of people with complex pain presentations arriving in hospital and being admitted, often with acute flare-ups of persistent pain. And this is particularly true uh, of people with abdominal pain and to some degree back pain, depending on local services. I think from the perspective of a doctor, which I'll start with, I think these sort of situations when you're asked to see people are probably familiar to anaesthetists at every level uh, of training and seniority and anaesthesia. And I think generally uh, people in the general anaesthetic team would see these as situations that can be very difficult to manage. This is partly because during the week, uh, such referrals would normally be managed, in fact, by acute or inpatient pain teams, but you might be asked to see people either in the evenings or at the weekend, and you may or may not have access to a colleague in pain medicine to uh, ring up and ask for some advice if necessary. So often, actually, even when you're walking to the ward to see somebody, uh, there can be various emotions and thoughts going through your head before you even start. Um, you might be wondering what's in your toolkit to help manage this situation. Uh, what would you have to offer that the team managing the people haven't offered already? You may even at one level wonder if it's your role to actually be going to see somebody in this situation. You may be wondering how the conversation will start. The patient may feel desperate, distressed, angry, all quite negative emotions which may confront you when you come to speak to them. It may be that the staff on the ward have been struggling uh, themselves and they might want to debrief before you speak to the patient. There may be relatives who are absolutely desperate to help who are there as well. I think the problem is, is that you're aware of the fact that medicines don't often work in chronic and persistent pain. And if you have somebody who's been admitted, who's been particularly under a community pain service already, you might wonder how you're going to manage. You may have nothing else in your toolkit to offer but you may be seen as the last resort. What happens if you fail? So there may be an awful lot of feelings and frustration and failure to deal with, and that's even before you've started to have the conversation. But I think it's useful at this stage to pause and think what might things be from the patient's perspective. And uh, Karen Gilmore is going to uh, pick up and discuss that next. Hello, my name is Karen Gilmore. So from the patient perspective, the patient's likely to be expecting another difficult conversation. They've often been seen by numerous clinicians and have been repeatedly told that there is nothing wrong. They may accept that there's nothing wrong, but then why have they still got pain? Or they may be convinced that something has been missed. To the patient, this can feel as though healthcare staff don't believe they really are in pain, or that the pain is 
in their head. They're likely to be confused, anxious, and possibly angry. Their repeated encounters with healthcare staff can make them feel that they're seen as a nuisance or malingering and a burden to the NHS. Or worse, they may think they're perceived as mad or even drug seeking. Chronic pain is often associated with depression and poor mental health and fear of activity can result in the patient doing less and less. Their life contracts, perhaps not able to work, socialize, or continue with their hobbies. There's a downward spiral of mental health and functional decline. They can feel isolated from family and friends and cannot see a way forwards. There is nowhere out, no way out and no one understands. Hello, my name is Helen Makins. So I think at this point it might be worth uh, thinking about why these situations are particularly complex. And Karen and Doug have quite nicely described situations there which I think many of us would find quite familiar to listen to. But maybe if we think about a, a fictional theoretical patient, uh, that might help us make this slightly more personal. So I'm going to describe a case that I think will be familiar to a lot of people who've worked in hospital medicine, particularly anaesthetists. Sue is a 29-year-old lady and she suffered from abdominal and pelvic pain for several years. She was admitted two days ago with worsening pain, particularly in the left iliac fossa. She doesn't have a temperature, her blood tests are all normal and she's known to have a left ovarian cyst on an ultrasound. She's previously had a laparoscopy which revealed a small amount of endometriosis. The gynaecology team, who are looking after the ward that she's on, don't feel there's any cause for concern regarding a new pathology and they feel that she's medically fit for discharge. But she still has severe pain. She screams out on occasions through the day and night. She's disturbing other patients on the ward and she says she can't cope with the pain if she goes home. The anaesthetist is called on Saturday afternoon to provide advice on pain management. So let's think about what makes that particular case complex. And I think there are a number of factors that would be applicable to this case and many other similar ones. If we start thinking about the case as the patient arrives in hospital. So the first thing she does is attend the emergency department and she gets her observations done. Pain is at this point recorded as the fifth vital sign. So immediately this is giving the impression that something can and should be done to fix this and if the patient scores highly this becomes even more appropriate it seems. For example if the blood pressure was high or the saturations were low or the heart rate was outside the accepted range there would be an appropriate expectation that staff would, staff would react to this and try to fix it. The pain scores documented in the same way on the same form so right from the outset there's an understandable drive to manage this in a similar way. If the patient's describing pain as a level of 10 out of 10 when asked, we feel as healthcare professionals that we need to do something about this and the patient of course will expect that. When she has a dose of morphine, for example, it might only reduce to 9 out of 10, so we're starting to think that we might need to do something else, but we're actually chasing a pain score. The next thing that happens is that she sees a doctor. Now, of course, traditional medical clerking appropriately focuses on pathology and trying to work out what's causing the pain. Of course, that's very appropriate because we need to exclude any acute pathology and, of course, the patient expects there to be a medical cause to be found. But what will happen if no obvious cause is found? 
As we know, a lot of acute pain is proportional to the severity of underlying disease. So staff and patients often feel that the degree of pain is likely to indicate the degree of tissue injury. This particular patient could be convinced that she has an underlying health condition causing the pain and that there must be a reason for it. She will probably like more investigations and an answer to why she has the pain so severely. She might well be requesting treatment for the cyst that she's seen on the previous scan or the endometriosis that was found at the laparoscopy. But as healthcare professionals, we might be feeling that her pain is out of keeping with the degree of pathology that we've found. If as healthcare professionals, we then explain that there's no identifiable cause for the pain, the patient could get the impression that the staff feel the pain is in some way made up and relationships between the patient and their healthcare professionals can become strained. There's an expectation that pain medications will work if enough are given, and so the patient and healthcare professionals might be keen to use morphine or other strong medications regularly, ever increasing the doses to try and keep on top of that pain score, or they might be thinking about alternative medications for managing the pain. There can also be a tension between what medical professionals feel is safe and appropriate and what the patient understandably feels might help. The other thing that happens is that we focus very strongly on the medical side of things, but we don't often expect to discuss social issues and mental health issues in an acute surgical or medical environment. And if we start to do so, we can feel like, and it can look to the patient, like we're distracting from getting to the bottom of the cause for that pain. Added to that, in some patients who have mental health comorbidities, those notes are kept separately from the hospital notes, so we have no background information, particularly in the acute setting. Those two areas, the medical and the mental health side of things, are often kept quite separately in current hospital records. So a combination of a lack of pathology being found and the patient feeling that the symptoms aren't being taken seriously can make her, understandably, wary of healthcare professionals and can bring out the emotions in us that Doug explained earlier. Added to this, there's no obvious gold standard or management pathways or guidance on what to do in this kind of situation. But we know as healthcare professionals that we can sometimes predict that this situation will occur. We know that patients may have attended with other similarly unexplained medical problems or functional neurological problems. Sometimes they've had high level distress over other issues in the past and they've often had repeated investigations. Okay, so thanks, Helen. So I'm going to take a little step backwards here and just think for a minute, actually, what is pain? Um, and this podcast is really designed not just for a, a pain anaesthetist audience, it's designed for a general anaesthetic audience. And if we take a step backwards and remember our absolute core training as anaesthetists, we always talked when one of the first things I ever learned was the anaesthetic triad, which is analgesia, anaesthesia, relaxation. And if you take a step backwards and think, well, what is analgesia? It's really around pain. Actually, there's an awful lot we don't know about what pain is because anaesthesia, the other thing we're talking about here is consciousness. And the problem is we don't really understand what consciousness is either. We know as an ethodist, we manipulate it all of the time uh, with our drugs and chemicals. I think we would all be more comfortable if we have a bit more of a handle on relaxation, but I think that's probably because it's been much more easy to unravel uh, the, the functioning and structure of the receptor systems in muscles and it has really been to try to crack the central nervous system which is pretty much what I think we'd expect at this early stage in the 21st century. But actually take a step back and think whenever you think about pain I'd reinforce what Helen's just said always remember your red flags people do miss pathology and the first thing you always have to do is make sure we're not missing something 
But taking a step back and thinking, well, what actually is pain and what is going on in the nervous system? Well, to a degree, what we already know is there's a very poor linkage between nociception, uh, the nociceptive pathways or damage to people, and their actual perception of pain. To some degree, it would be lovely if we could kind of look inside somebody's head and find out what's going on. And to a degree, that is possible with certain types of neuroimaging. So if we take a look and think what somebody like Professor Irene Tracy, who is the Nuffield Professor of uh, Anesthetics in Oxford's team has been doing, they've been using functional magnetic resonance imaging to look at what happens when people with acute and chronic pain problems are put into experimental situations and their brains are scanned. Now we're all used to MRI scanning. It looks at structural forms of the uh, body, but functional magnetic scanning actually looks at the function and really what it's doing is it's actually detecting blood flow in the brain. Now what the functional scans show, and I think the most important thing to think about is there isn't actually a specific bit of the brain. There isn't a pain cortex in the brain, a bit like there's a visual cortex or Broca's area relating to speech or other bits of the brain that we all remember from medical student neuroanatomy. Um, I think the second thing is, is that it shows that there is a huge amount of processing going on now, this is all reflected in blood flow changes, but the problem is there's a bit of reverse inference going on. In reality, we don't really know what the blood flow changes actually mean. We don't know how processing in the brain sparks into consciousness itself. And I think that's going to be one of the most fascinating things uh, to discover in the 21st century, I hope. Um, why does the brain work? Why do we have thoughts? Uh, we also know that the thoughts that pop into our head from the subconscious level actually go through a mood contextual filter. So depending on what mood you're in, it actually affects the type of thinking you're having. And that's the basis of uh, some modern psychological therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy. But if we look, what we see is that when people are put in experimental scanners and kind of harmlessly burned with a laser, uh, that different bits of the brain will light up and bits of the somatosensory cortex will light up, the insular, the cingulate cortex, frontal parietal areas, uh, some motor areas sometimes. Uh, it's hard to tell really whether this is pain or perception and I don't think the answer to that has been fully elucidated. However, what's clear is when we put people uh, with chronic pain into scanners, uh, they have very significant structural and functional changes uh, in their brains. Uh, and indeed, this was quite shocking when we first saw it or realised this, um, that the patients had very altered brains, or as Professor Irene Tracy once commented, uh, very sick brains indeed. Uh, patients themselves have been telling us this for years. They've told us that they have felt um, that their brain is foggy, that they forget things, uh, that, that they don't feel their normal selves. Um, and clearly, um, there are very significant changes that have happened, and people's brains appear to be very neuroplastic. Uh, the positive aspect of this, however, is, is that that neuroplasticity or maladaptive plasticity, as it's sometimes called, can change and can actually improve. And there are some circumstances where some therapies, for example, orthopaedic hip replacement, uh, where the barrage of nociception is removed, or indeed some psychological therapies, where some very positive changes uh, have been noted themselves. So bringing it back to our patient, how are we going to approach them? It's helpful to get as much background information as possible before seeing the patient. Speak to the team looking after them and find out what's happened on this admission and previous admissions. 
The nursing staff may be able to tell you about background family issues, perhaps visitors, what the patient can and can't do, and requests for medication. Take an empathic approach to the patient. Most don't want to be in hospital, but can't see an alternative way of dealing with their pain. And as we've already said, it's very important that the patient feels believed that their pain is real. And the message that there's no organic pathology is not interpreted as their pain being imagined. Find out what's happening in the patient's life, and in particular, in the days leading up to admission. Who is at home with them? How is the family coping? If they live by themselves, what is their support network? Are they working? And if so, what impact is the pain having on their work? Are there financial stresses? When they're feeling well, what do they like to do? That is, what are their hobbies? And what impact has the pain had on those? Have they noticed what causes their pain to flare up or what helps to settle it? Answers to this question may provide an opportunity to explain to the patient, relatives and staff, the role that stress or mood may have on their symptoms. The patient needs to feel confident that you want to help. Try to be in understanding mode rather than cure or fix mode. So we've talked a lot about the complexity of uh, this patient and, and many others who are similar. And for me, I need to try and make sense of that. And I, I feel that keeping things very simple seems like an important place to start. And I would suggest perhaps thinking about assessing the pain according to some very simple principles. And the idea of that is to really rationally guide the kind of medical management that we might offer. And importantly, in this sort of situation, to avoid over-medicalisation of the particular problem. Hopefully, by doing this, um, this will prevent us from working through a long list of possible medications and medical treatments, which we know from our own experience, I'm sure, can become more and more tenuous over time and more and more unlikely to help with more and more frustration. Ultimately, all these medical treatments obviously have the potential for side effects, and they maintain the sort of biological model or the medicalization, which might prevent faster access for this patient to management strategies that might be more helpful. So continuing the biological model of thought can also perpetuate the expectation in staff as well as the patient and their relatives, that there's a fix available, or that if nothing is working, then something might be being missed. The biggest concern is that this can inadvertently set up a cycle of continued investigation treatment attempts, as I've said, and iatrogenic harm. So thinking about that structure for the assessment, the first question I would suggest asking oneself is, is the pain acute or chronic? And of course, it could be acute or chronic. So as Karen just said, we need to take the time to establish the background history to know this. And for example, in this case, it would be an acute or chronic type situation. Is the pain nociceptive or neuropathic? So in other words, is the pain well localised? Does it seem discreet? And is it likely to be caused by an acute, an acute or inflammatory process? Or is there any evidence that a clear specific nerve or nerves are implicated? I would suggest in this situation, the answer to those questions is no. And often in these situations, the pain doesn't fit the expected pattern of a common acute pathology. 
And so we're starting to think at this point that this admission might not cure the symptoms and that medications and medical treatments are probably not going to be the answer. The third question I'd ask myself is, is this a life-limiting life or life-threatening condition? Clearly at this point with this particular patient, there are no concerns for cancer or a life-limiting condi life condition. And if the patient doesn't have such a condition, then we need to be thinking about management strategies that would be sustainable and are unlikely to cause long-term problems. So then we need to start thinking about what the management options might be. So we know that this is a chronic benign pain that's not life-limiting. It's not clearly neuropathic or nociceptive, and therefore medical treatments are unlikely to help, and we're going to need to consider non-medical management. So Zoe, I wonder whether you could share some of your experience and tips for helping patients with complex pain in hospital at this point. Well, I'd like to start by thanking my medical colleagues, Doug, Karen and Helen, because they've already done a fantastic job of explaining how to approach patients with complex pain in a psychologically informed manner. So my job is done before I've even started. Thank you. As they've said, the most up-to-date evidence in this field demonstrates that the most important tool that you have in your toolkit is your communication. If you allow just an extra five minutes to really listen to your patient, to ask them what they think is wrong and also what they think would help, then that will save you much more than five minutes in repeated, fruitless and wasted further consultations. I'd also like to emphasise how important it is to normalise and validate the patient's experiences. Indeed, feedback from patients is that it really helps to be told that this is a normal reaction to being in pain. Indeed, that it's completely normal to be scared that there might be a sinister cause for their pain or to be scared that they might not be able to cope with their pain or any further increases in it. It's also normal to be getting really frustrated and angry when repeated tests and investigations are unable to identify that treatable cause for their pain. It might even make them angry that they think that their doctors no longer believe them and they think that they're making it up and it's all in their head. And indeed, as time ticks on, it's also completely normal to start feeling hopeless and down and really beginning to feel that things are never going to improve and that's when depression can really start to kick in. So all of that is a completely normal psychological reaction to being in pain, but unfortunately that starts to become part of the problem. That pain-related distress just feeds back into their pain and causes further wind-up and further suffering. The good news is that actually your patients can learn very simple techniques to help control their pain-related distress. Simple techniques like deep breathing and relaxation strategies, but all of that will only work if their doctors have taken the time to listen to their worst fears about the cause of their pain and have given them appropriate medical reassurance that that worst fear isn't true. Really, this allows them to feel much more in control of their situation and much more able to cope with their pain. So essentially, your compassionate communication helps your patients to feel listened to and understood. So if you can adapt, slow down your communication style to be more collaborative rather than teaching, then you can empower your patients to feel much more in control of their pain and more in control of their future again. There's actually a biological reason why your words can work in this way. 
if your patient feels heard and understood by you, then they start to feel safer, which then stimulates their neuroendocrine system to release attachment hormones. Indeed, your compassionate words will stimulate the release of oxytocin, endogenous opioids and the patient's vagus nerve, which causes a real soothing of that pain-related distress. So there aren't any side effects to that natural attachment phenomenon. Really, this approach is much less about medication and much more about reducing pain-related distress to promote your patient's self-management. In Manchester, we've been using this psychologically informed approach within our inpatient pain service for nearly six years now, and only last month we were able to publish our findings in the British Journal of Pain. By using this psychologically informed approach, we've found that there's been an 84% reduction in total length of stay and actually a 60% reduction in any further subsequent admissions. I was on the ward round only yesterday, actually, with my medical colleague, Dr. Chandran Jebanarnam. And what I noticed is that actually he was reducing opioid prescriptions for most of the patients we saw together. But that was only after he'd taken the time to really listen to their concerns. And he was able to give them the reassurance that their worst fears weren't true. He was then able to talk about kind of opioids and the side effects that those high doses cause. But he was also able to give them some hope that there might be a completely different way to approaching the management of their pain. So you too can use your compassionate words to help patients to feel safe when they're actually terrified and really scared of their pain. If you take the time to ask them what they think is causing their pain and what they think would help, you will then be able to tailor your reassurance to help them to feel much safer and much more able to feel in control of their pain. Uh, Thanks Zoe, and I think you've set a super context for discussing approaches to medicines or actually more importantly approaches to management because it may be actually that medicines aren't the right management in this situation and I think before I talk about medicines it's useful to think about context because there's some very interesting experimental work that shows that people in some circumstances uh, who are highly distressed and have very specific expectations this can actually wipe or really remove almost altogether the effect of analgesic drugs. And this is particularly true with the opioids. And I think we have some understanding of the neurophysiological mechanisms underlying this. Essentially, while most people are aware of the fact that drugs can alter mood, I think fewer people are aware that the brain and mood can have a profound modulating effect on drugs. And particularly distressed moods and psychological distress itself can actually have a significant negative effect on inhibitory pain systems. And this can be one of the reasons why we see people who are often highly distressed, who very paradoxically don't seem to respond very well to normal painkillers that other people in other situations would respond absolutely fine to. So when we actually look at uh, medicines, we need to think what sort of goals are we trying to achieve? And if we take ourselves back and think, as Helen explained, Let's just go back and think about um, the duration of pain, the mechanism of pain, and the type of pain that we have. So if this is an acute on chronic flare-up of pain, then this person has had pain that's not been able to be cured with the best medication and assistance in outpatients. So I think we probably have to be kind to ourselves as well as the patient and sit and explain that if we can't cure something long-term in outpatients, it's unlikely we would cure a flare as in an inpatient, but what we 
absolutely appropriately need to do is make sure there's nothing else going on that could be causing that flare and really not to take things for granted and look for our red flags and investigate people properly. We do need to look and think, is this cancer type of pain or a non-cancer type of pain? And we already know now it's a benign, persistent non-cancer pain. And as Helen said, we would look and think, is this a nociceptive pain? Where if we thought it was, uh, we'd be using anti-inflammatory drugs or analgesic, simple analgesic drugs often. Or is it a neuropathic pain, in which case we want to be using psychotropic medication, i.e. largely based on antidepressants and anti-epileptics? The problem is if it's neither clear that it's one or the other and people aren't responding or the patient isn't responding to medication as given, it may be that this is the wrong medicine in the wrong context and it may be in fact that medicines themselves are the wrong approach. What we'd certainly caution against is simply trying to up doses of drugs, discharge people without any follow-up or review and communicate poorly with primary care. Because our experience is, is that this will simply get the patients into a negative cycle of admissions and drug dose escalation. Actually, you need to spend time with people. You really need to look at what they were taking before and come up with a sensible plan about what they should really be taking afterwards. TTOs may be, or take-home drugs may be appropriate, or they may not be appropriate. It may be that the patient uh, is in a situation where only one GP is prescribing for them, in which case the role of the hospital or the emergency department, is really um, to find out whether they need admitted with new or different pathology. Again, it's important to discuss expectations with patients and be realistic and be kind. People who are highly distressed because they're living with suffering don't want to be living with suffering. I think it's very reasonable if they've had the problem for a long time and there's not been a cure, really to explain that if we suddenly had a cure that they had been denied for a long time, that they may wonder why that was the case. But what you're really doing is going in and giving another opinion, a second or a third opinion, really to clarify that there's nothing obvious as an expert in the acute pain management of drugs that you can see that would make a big difference in the situation. Sometimes there may be some drugs that can be given as in the acute situation, some non-opioid alternative medicines, but then one has to look and think, are they practical and safe to give at home? That's one of the problems we have is that drugs that can be used in cancer pain or acute pain uh, may not be appropriate for people to take for long periods of time as they may have very deleterious effect on their bodies. We do know with opioid drugs, for example, uh, that opioids themselves have pain-sensitising effects, that these pain-sensitising effects aren't really seen uh, very much in acute pain, although they can be detected very quickly in studies. And then not so much of a problem in people who are terminally ill, where actually analgesia and achieving pain relief in the context of helping people live with uh, the enormous uh, problems with suffering or suffering and dying is very appropriate. But we also know that that's often time limited. The difficulty is, is that what do you do with a drug which can be helpful in the short term but can become very unhelpful for your body in the longer term? And the answer is you can only have an honest conversation about that. You can look out for side effects. And actually, strangely, paradoxically, in some situations, the pain sensitization effects of morphine can actually sometimes be worse than the original pain problem, in which case tapering down and stopping it with supported outpatients may be appropriate. But I think the most important thing is the patients don't feel lost and abandoned, that other options are given to them, and that if you're looking to improve the toolkit that they have themselves to manage their problem, that they're directed towards professionals who can help and support and provide this. That if drugs aren't the right things, 
that they're offered the chance to learn skills that are. And whatever happens, if somebody is distressed, then even as a human being, before you become a doctor who understands the neurophysiology of why this distress might actually be really bad for their pain, actually, we need to meet people. Medicine is here to relieve suffering. And this is something we're doing at the most basic level. But the most important thing, as Mayo Angelou said, uh, a fantastic lady I'd like to quote, people don't always remember what you say, but they usually remember how you feel. So I think what we've heard so far is that bringing things back to the simple things that we can all do as healthcare professionals is really key. And I think the sort of three question structure that we've talked about quite a lot now um, helps us to think about complex pain and allows us to bring the management back to simple, effective and safe measures and make sure that those are done well. If we compare this kind of approach with a more familiar situation for anaesthetists, I would compare it with a sort of ALS or an ABC approach to dealing with a complex or a critically ill patient. And I think in that scenario, we would mostly agree that even the most experienced healthcare professionals amongst us would be reluctant to approach such a critically ill patient without thinking ABC in our minds. And the reason for that is because without that structure, we're likely or possibly will miss the important fundamental things that need to be managed first. So using this similar clear structure for pain assessment seems to have some similar benefits. So it will mean that we are hopefully speaking a similar language to our colleagues if everybody uses the same kind of strategy for thinking about things. It will give us the opportunity to make a logical and clear plan. And we will feel supported in that plan because we're following a structure to make it. And that in turn will make us feel more confident about the plan and more decisive about instituting it. It also means, I think, that colleagues and patients and relatives will feel reassured because there's no ambiguity. And I think that that really is the key thing, that if we can keep this as simple as possible, it keeps the clarity within our minds and the clarity within the minds of those around us and makes the whole thing a lot easier. To quote Einstein, if I might at this point, genius is making complex ideas simple, not making simple ideas complex. And I think that really resonates in this situation. So Karen, uh, would you like to talk a little bit more about the specific structure we've been using? Thank you, Helen. We approached this case in a very logical, simple way. And the format we used was based on the essential pain management or EPM structure. And at the core of this structure are three steps, recognise, assess and treat. Recognise the different factors involved in the presentation, including psychosocial as well as medical. Assess whether the pain is acute or chronic, nociceptive or neuropathic and cancer or non-cancer. The treatment section directs clinicians to consider non-pharmacological management first, as it's easy to forget this. And identifying pain type aids selection of appropriate pharmacological treatment. This EPM approach can be applied to any pain problem. The format to the podcast has been similar to an EPM session, that is short lectures alternating between speakers. The other important and popular component of EPM courses are case discussions, which emphasise key learning points and encourage interaction from participants. And throughout, the biopsychosocial model is emphasised.
Thanks, Karen. I find the EPM structure helps me hugely in my daily work. Because actually, when I see patients, I'm looking to think, what type of pain problem have they got? I.e., have they got an acute pain, an acute on chronic flare-up, chronic or persistent pain? Or does this person have cancer, which hugely changes the approach that I would take uh, towards managing them if they do, particularly if they're terminally ill? I'd be wondering how the mechanism of pain relates to what the people's re- what the person's reporting, and uh, i.e., is this a nociceptive pain or a neuropathic pain? Because again, this hugely changes the approach towards treatment. Because neuropathic or neurological pain is really treated with psychotropic drugs, i.e., antidepressants or antiepileptics. EPM is something that was developed, or essential pain management was developed, uh, really to help professionals in low-income countries manage pain effectively. And it was developed by some Australasian anaesthetists, Wayne Morris and Roger Gauck, and also a palliative care consultant, Linda Huggins. And really what they noticed was that few people seemed to have any framework for approaching people with pain. And really they thought that there was a need for something a bit like an ABC that you would see in an advanced life support course. Um, and, and they came up really with the approach that uh, we've been describing and outlining. Now, Karen and I actually teach EPM for medical students in Plymouth, um, and it's very well received. It's a course that's based on material from the Faculty of Pain Medicine. All the materials can be downloaded. And in fact, the faculty and the team running EPM would be very keen for people to take up and actually uh, run it in their own area if they haven't done it. I think what it provides is a very tried and tested course that gets very good feedback from the students. And it uses different modalities of teaching during the process. It uses some MCQs. It uses very short five-minute lectures. Uh, It then predominantly works in a small group format, which the students actually really like. But at its kernel, it's teaching the uh, recognised type of pain, assess and treat manage. And it's also looking at non-pharmacological as well as pharmacological approaches, really based on the context of the type and mechanism of pain. Um, Now, that's my experience of teaching it locally, but I think certainly Karen and Helen have also taught it abroad. So it'd be interesting to hear what their thoughts are at this stage on teaching abroad. So I've taught EPM in um, Malawi and Kenya and the Gambia. And I have to say that every course has actually been um, received very enthusiastically by um, local healthcare professionals um, because it's very adaptable and um, and can be, um, you know, it can be adapted to be applied in their local situation. Um, the, the, the global EPM, which is what we're talking about now, um, has a, also has a train the trainer component. And so on the last day, the newly trained instructors run the course, a sort of one day course themselves, and are able to bring their local experience to illustrate the central teaching points. And I think that works extremely well. I've, um, I've witnessed um, people talk about how they're going to take the RAT structure, the recognize, assess, treat structure, and apply it to different situations in their workplace, for example, um, on the wards, on ward rounds, or in the morning handover sessions. Um, Helen, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, just to say that my experience has been pretty similar. So I have taught in, I've lost track, maybe four or five different West African countries um, over the last four four or five years. Um, And I would say the same thing. I I think the most important thing is its flexibility. 
So although a lot of these West African countries would have similar issues, the solutions to overcoming the barriers that they find to optimal pain management are often quite different or involve um, liaison and negotiation with, with different groups of people. Um, and they, they, the adaptability of the course to, towards um, finding the barriers and, and trying to overcome them seems to be something that's really very well received. And I think one of the biggest barriers in to, to pain management abroad is actually the availability of morphine, bizarrely, after the conversation we've just had. And actually, a lot of the courses that we run in Africa are about trying to encourage people to use opioids, whereas, in fact, the courses that we're running in the UK are about appropriately using the readily available opioids. Um, and that's that's quite an interesting difference for me, but really does it illustrate the two extremes. Of, of problems that can be faced and the way that this kind of structure to thinking about pain management can be used. And just moving on from sort of what we've done abroad into more of the UK experience, I think, you know, we've talked about a very complex situation and a, a sort of case study that a lot of doctors within the UK would find incredibly difficult to manage, regardless of seniority. Um, and, and this is I guess, aimed at everybody of every level in terms of a listening audience. But we use this same structure right the way through from medical students, right the way through to um, consultants uh, learning about pain management or understanding better how to manage patients. So again, I just re-emphasise really the adaptability of this structure and the fact that it can be used uh, by pretty much anybody uh, approaching a patient with pain. Yeah, and just to chime in at this stage before we have some final thoughts, um, Karen and I run an EPM course actually for fourth year medical students in Plymouth. H Helen does the same in Bristol. And if people are interested in actually picking up and running about this course, it is actually um, there's website resources on the Faculty of Pain Medicine website. And we really encourage people to get interested in EPM. Um, we encourage people to get interested in looking after people with pain, actually, generally. But uh, certainly EPM is a great venue. And it's also starting to be uh, used for foundation doctor training as well. Uh, and it's a very adaptable uh, course. It's a very good format that's sort of developed over time. And, and, and the feedback we get from the students and the foundation doctors is very good. They, they really like it. Um, I can't really at this stage not plug ePain, which is... Um, the Faculty of Pain Medicine uh, collaboration with the British Pain Society and uh, Health Education England, uh, which is an e-learning programme which you can do for free, which is similar but different to e-learning anaesthesia, more of you will be familiar with, because it's basically based on the International Association of the Study of Pain's multidisciplinary curriculum in pain, and we are at the moment constructing and putting in um, some modules and sessions uh, based on EPM, uh, which aren't there at the moment, but I hope by this time next year they'll be in place. And uh, again, if you're more interested, uh, that'll be another resource to look at in the future. But I think it's probably time for everybody who's been involved in this podcast, first of all, to say an enormous thanks to everybody and say, um, let's have some final thoughts, really, and maybe starting with Zoe. Zoe, have you got any thoughts as we come yeah. to the end of this programme? Well, listening to you guys talking about teaching EPM in Africa and all those exciting places, I have been involved in EPM in Manchester, my medical college teacher, and I usually join them for the complex patient one, the fibromyalgia patient, and it's the fourth and fifth year Manchester medical students, not quite as exciting as Africa, but still kind of very much connecting with fellow human beings. And I think that's what I would really encourage all of our listeners to think about, regardless of where we are in the world, we are human beings trying to help 
help other human beings. And I think that if they take the time to really be compassionate in the way they apply their medicine, then actually that will make their patients feel safe, feel heard, and that will stimulate their own endogenous opioids. So they don't need to reach for the prescription pad or rather sign into the electronic prescribing. Actually, they can stimulate those same pathways by making their patients feel safe and feel heard and feel valued. And I take that, I accept that's a big ask compared to that heart sink feeling when you read the referral and you know how complex that patient is going to be. But I'm really hoping that having listened to this podcast today, people will, will feel confident there is a totally different way of approaching patients with complex pain. And it doesn't rely on years and years of medical school. It relies on their very human communication skills. Oh, I would really reinforce that. And just to reassure you, Zoe, I haven't been to exotic places either. I tend to teach EPM in Plymouth <laughs> and Torquay, but well, we're actually starting at Torquay. I haven't started it yet. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I drive down to Plymouth and uh, with the viral pandemic, uh, in fact, Karen and I did our first one on Zoom uh, for fourth year medical yeah. students, uh, uh, which was, uh, you know, sort of uh, something we have to do for the moment, really. But again, even things like we're actually recording this on um, remotely so one of us is in Manchester somebody's one of us is in Gloucester one of us is in Plymouth and I'm sitting uh, near Newton Abbott in South Devon uh, you know uh, the whole thing is being recorded and coordinated from the college in London so you know it's uh, technology and things are changing but I think Zoe's right at the end of the day we are all humans we're all people uh, and I think really the most important thing is is that both the patients and us as doctors need more in our our, our toolkits for pain really than just pills particularly if the pills don't work. And there are often situations now where our largely receptor-based drugs, which don't even cover a fraction of the receptors in reality, the nociceptive pathway, um, just don't work for people. Um, and, and they don't understand, and we have to explain and hold and help these people uh, go through this very difficult process, because nobody really wants to live with suffering in my experience. But, um, but anyway, uh, Karen, have you any final thoughts while we go through? I think the thing that I would just add is that um, I think the very core of EPM, um, the sort of recognising the biopsychosocial approach to pain, um, the classification of pain, and then the, the emphasis um, on non-pharmacological techniques um, in addition to pharmacological techniques for managing pain is, um, has been very usefully um, applied to all sorts of situations. And I think um, can be using so can be so flexible um, in terms of I think as Helen said the different people that you might want to teach or the different clinical situations that you might want to use it in um, I think that you know it's, it's a great resource um, and um, you know I'd recommend people have a look at um, what's available on the website that's lovely. And uh, finally, Helen, who I need to say has, has written most of the script for this podcast and has been absolutely instrumental in, uh, in promoting EPM um, uh, around the country. Have you got any final thoughts, Helen, at the end, as we come towards an end? Yeah, I think a thing that strikes me through our conversation is that somebody listening to this who's a busy anaesthetist might be thinking, I haven't got time for all of this. This is going to take me ages. And I think I would try, if I can, to be a bit reassuring about that. Going back to something that Zoe mentioned earlier, even an extra five minutes taken to have a sort of psychologically informed, if you like, for want of a better expression, conversation <laughs> can be time very well spent and can actually avoid futile attempts to pile in more medication, come 
feedback review, have a more distressed patient, more distressed staff on the ward and so on and so forth. So although it sounds like this is difficult and hard work and could take a long period of time, and I'm not suggesting it can be done in a, in a moment, um, I think overall, actually, I have found that this is very time saving. I think that patients uh, find it easier to leave hospitals, so inpatient stays are shorter as a result of this kind of management, and that patients, importantly, most importantly, are more satisfied with the outcome of their consultation or their stay in hospital. So for me, that's really, really key. And beyond that, I think personally, approaching patients with a more empathic way of and, and more understanding of the situation um, makes me feel much happier in my job. I feel a huge amount more personal satisfaction and it's actually probably the reason why I like to spend more of my time now doing chronic pain than I do doing anaesthetics and the reason for that is that I have realised that taking this kind of approach for patients is something that is almost my USP to some degree, but I don't believe it needs to be my USP. I think it could be the USP of every healthcare professional. And, and I guess my message would be, please just think about it. And hopefully you'll find that your job satisfaction and those heart sink moments are fewer and further between. Okay, thanks. Well, look, th thanks everybody. I think we're probably going to call this podcast to a close and uh, I hope that we've um, provided something, some food for thought for today. So thank you very much um, and uh, all the best. This podcast was brought to you by the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Please don't forget to subscribe so you can keep up to date with our latest episodes. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.